And so let us attend our whole person to the reading and hearing of God's word. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. (coughs) Amen. So as we begin here today, uh, whenever we see the work of an artist or hear the work of a musician or even look at something that someone has built uh, or a maker, creator, inventor of, of some kind of thing, we of course learn some things about the person who made it or who is performing it, or whatever it happens to be. Well, in a similar way, when we consider especially the redeeming work of God through Jesus Christ, it teaches us about God's character. And we can talk about a variety of things. But Paul here is emphasizing one aspect in particular, and that is the attribute of God's righteousness. And so that has been his theme and continues to be his theme here in this section. And so that'll be, of course, our focal point, not only today, but in the weeks to come. Now, last time we began this transition from Paul's message about our sinfulness and God's wrath, now here to God's righteousness. So in chapter 1, verse 18, God's wrath is revealed. Now here, chapter 3, verse 21, God's righteousness is revealed. This central section begins with the words, but now. And um, I highlighted some of those ideas last week. There's this utter contrast now from sin and wrath and judgment to righteousness and salvation. Well, when Paul says now, he has two ideas in mind. And the first one we emphasized last time, and that is the temporal now. There is a a change in time, a chronological progression. And so we spent a few moments on that last week referring to those things, because in the Old Testament, some things were said and done in certain ways. The law was given. It emphasizes our sin, uh, shows it to us, and so forth. Um, We see, of course, the promises of salvation to come in the Messiah. And so the sacrificial system, the prophets, in some way, all the Old Testament anticipates the coming of Christ and the righteousness that God would reveal when he would come. Well, now Christ has come. And so Paul is emphasizing this. And so major changes have taken place. What God promised in the Old Testament is now fulfilled In Christ, the era of anticipation is over. The era of fulfillment has come. Now, in so doing, then, some things are set aside. But the central ideas of the Old Covenant, the essence of it, the substance of it, is still the same. And so, in an outward sense, there are fundamental changes. We're not bringing blood sacrifice into our worship, for example. Uh, But the heart of what who God is and his ways, what he promised and all of that has fundamentally stayed the same. And so the changes are more surficial, if you will, as we transition from the era of promise to the era of fulfillment. Well, Paul also then has in mind now in a logical sense, 
In other words, let me give you my next point in my argument. I've been laying forth all these ideas in chapters 1 to 3. <clears throat> so now let me give you the next point. Now some have tried to make the case that this is Paul's only point. I think that goes too far. It may be the case that we can say it's his primary point. But even so, it cannot be understood without the temporal connections. And so, as we saw then again in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul first told us of God's wrath revealed against all of us for our sin. But now, chapter 321, Paul tells us of God's righteousness revealed to remedy the problem of our sin. So that happens through the coming of Christ and these chronological events. But Paul is explaining it here, too, in this logical progression. All right, let's turn back to chapter 1 then and look at verses 16 and 17. <coughs> All right, you recall that this is the, uh, uh, the theme verses of the letter. Verse 16. <coughs> For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. Notice the gospel here has power. Okay? It has power because of the finished work of Christ and the work of the Spirit working through the proclamation of what Jesus has done. Okay, and so these words have power because of the Spirit working. So, verse 17, For in it, meaning the gospel, the power of God, uh, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. All right, now, notice how verse 17 is very similar to what we have in our verse, but there are a couple differences, and unfortunately, sometimes the English translations do not make that clear. The word here for reveal means to uncover, to take the blanket off, as it were, to uncover what's underneath, okay, to take, uh, take it off so that we can see it. But it's also communicating something that is ongoing. It would be more accurate to translate it as the, the righteousness of God is being revealed. It's something that is continuous. It's ongoing. It's happening. And so here, Paul is emphasizing the proclamation of the gospel. When I speak... When you speak to people about God, about Christ, and so forth, whether it's uh, at home with your family or somewhere else, when we are speaking about the things of God, the righteousness of God is being revealed. It's not only something that happened in Paul's day, but it happens throughout history. Anytime this happens, anytime we are doing this. And, th and this is what Paul is emphasizing here in chapter 1. As we look at chapter 3 then, verse 21, you'll notice the New King James says it the same way. The righteousness of God is revealed. But there are these differences. First of all, it's actually a different verb to reveal. The first one has the idea of uncovering, okay, exposing, helping people to see. This one 
is similar, but note the difference. It's emphasizing a demonstration. Okay? When you are showing something, when you're manifesting something, this is the idea here. The righteousness of God is demonstrated through the work of Christ. That's his emphasis here. Chapter 1, our speaking, our proclamations. Here, the righteousness of God is being demonstrated by what Jesus did. And so the verb then also is not emphasizing an ongoing work. It's emphasizing something that has happened already. And so um, the way we used to translate perfect passives is like this, is revealed. Today, it's more common to hear people say something like has been revealed. Okay? It's the same thing, it's just a different way of, uh, of saying things in the English. But the emphasis that Paul is making here is that the righteousness of God has already been revealed. It's already been demonstrated in the past. It's not something we're doing. When we demonstrate it, it's by proclamation. But Paul here is emphasizing what Christ has done. That has revealed God's righteousness, he says. Okay? So, he is going to especially emphasize this point in verses 24 to 26. But what I would like to do is expand on the point here today in a a more comprehensive kind of way. So, First of all, what do we mean by God's righteousness? God's righteousness, then, can be uh, focusing on his character, who he is. God is righteous, meaning he always does what is right. As I've said before, when we're talking about righteousness, we're talking about the law. God's character is the basis of every one of his laws, And he is always consistent with that law. He never goes against it. He is righteous in this sense. And this becomes especially important in verse 26. Paul's going to say God's righteous character has not been violated through the work of Christ. In fact, it's been upheld. And so we'll see that uh, when, when we get there. But Uh, He is righteous. He is just. We can also talk about the promises that God makes and how he fulfills them. He is righteous. He always does what is right. But we can also talk about God's righteousness in this way. And that is what Luther couldn't get past. And that is the idea that God punishes sin. For Luther, this is, this is all he thought about. God is righteous. He, he is opposed to sin. He's going to punish sin. His wrath is poured out uh, against sinners. And so when Christ comes, that's what happens, right? And you see that, especially in verses 24 and 25. Right? <clears throat> God's righteousness is poured out uh, on Christ instead of us. But we also can talk about God's righteousness, and this is what Luther finally came to understand, and of course really kick-started the Reformation and so forth, right? Is that God's righteousness is a gift. It is something that he gives to his people, and he does that through Christ. It's not just a handout. God is not a welfare system. 
God gives us righteousness righteously, justly. And this is what Paul is going to elaborate upon here again, especially in verses 24 to 26. So again, back to our point here, these ideas have been revealed in what Christ has done. So two more thoughts here in this way. Uh, First of all, if you look at these verses, notice that the word for righteous is used seven times in these six verses. Obviously, verse 21, the righteousness of God. Verse 22, the righteousness of God. Verse 24, being justified. That's the same root word. We could translate it uh, being declared righteous or something like that. Okay, but it's the same root word. Verse 25, uh, to demonstrate his righteousness. Verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just, that's the same word, root word anyway, okay, that he might be righteous, and the justifier, or right, the one who declares to be righteous. So seven times altogether. You know, yesterday <clears throat> we uh, took the, uh, I took the, two children here to their piano lessons. And, and uh, in driving there and back, uh, I noticed two marquees on churches. And uh, they said about God's love for us. And it is very frequent when you hear people say, well, when we're saying what the gospel is, we are talking about God's love for us. And that's true, obviously, John three sixteen for God to love the world and so on. And that's certainly part of it. But if Paul were to put something on a marquee, he would not say God is love. He would say God is righteous. We don't understand God's love until we understand God's righteousness and how it has been fulfilled and upheld through the finished work of Christ. So uh, pay attention to this. Hey, The gospel message is not merely, well, God loves you. The gospel message is, God has made us right in his sight. And he has done it through Christ. So, with all that in mind, let me now give us this broad overview here today about how the righteousness of God is revealed through Christ's work. I'm just going to touch on things, and we'll expand especially Excuse me, in verses 24 to 26. Excuse me. As you can hear, I've had this junky cough for weeks. (coughs) Excuse me. Matthew, I think I'm going to need another one, buddy. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Well, first of all, we see the righteousness of God revealed in Christ in his incarnation, in his birth. God, the son, who is fully righteous, like we've just talked about. The character of God in righteousness applies to Christ, not only the father. And he then added a human nature without sin. 
And so this human nature, God made Adam in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, we say. Okay? So the righteousness of God, the righteousness of human nature without sin are brought together. Two natures in one person. We see then also <clears throat> the righteousness of God shown to us in God fulfilling his promises. When we talk about the birth of Christ, we especially emphasize how God is fulfilling his promises to us in his birth. <clears throat> Thank you. And so for all these thousands of years, all these promises were made, and then we have the birth of Christ. And so we see God's righteousness in this sense, too. Let's turn a moment to Matthew chapter 1. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 1. Okay. And notice in verse 19, we are told that Joseph is righteous. Okay. Translation may say a just man. Same root word there, he is righteous. How was Joseph righteous? Well, he found out that his bride-to-be was pregnant. And so he's going to be righteous by divorcing her and, and so forth. So not uh, going along with the sin, you might say. So then the angel comes to him in a dream. And note verse 20. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Or we could word it like this. She's been righteous, Joseph. This is God's doing. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And so these promises, here Isaiah 7 in particular is referenced. And so God's righteousness, his promises, his, uh, who he is is upheld in these ways. Okay. <clears throat> so whenever we are celebrating the birth of Christ, let us also keep in mind this is demonstrating God's righteousness here in these ways. So then secondly, we see the righteousness of God revealed in Christ through his perfect life, his righteous life. Now this may be a little easier for us to see, um, <clears throat> but God the Son came to us to obey perfectly, and he did. There's not one way that Jesus ever sinned, and he did what we cannot do. He fulfilled the law of God, and we can't even come close to that, right? We're down at a zero in and of ourselves. Christ, 100% in every way, righteously obeyed the law of God, meeting every aspect of his requirements. <clears throat> so let's turn here now to Hebrews chapter 7. Now stick something here because I want to return to Hebrews um, <clears throat> for some more uh, things to read. But here, first of all, in Hebrews 7, let's uh, look at verse 26. And you'll notice what we read in the confession here a little bit ago uses this language. Hebrews 7, verse 26. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Okay, so holy, right? He's set apart from sin. He is harmless, meaning he is innocent. He doesn't do anything sinful, you could say. He is undefiled, obviously not defiled by sin, and separate from sinners. And has become higher than the heavens. 
who does not need daily as those high priests who offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Now note the assumption here. How can you offer a sacrifice if you're a sinner? Or even more specifically, how can you offer a sacrifice that is sinful, meaning that has blemishes, that is unrighteous? You can't. Obviously, God forbade that, right? And so if Christ is offering himself, that is saying that he is righteous. He has no blemishes. And so verse 26, of course, spells that out. But also here at the end of verse 27. And it says that he's not offering sacrifice for his own sins, but for the sins of others is the implication here, right? So verse 28, for the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, that's Psalm 110 about Melchizedek, appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Now, obviously, we can look at a variety of other passages here, but you see that the righteousness of God is revealed in the perfect life of Christ. And, as Paul's going to go on to say, because this is true, we can receive gifts. The gift of righteousness and the gift of eternal life. All right, now thirdly, the righteousness of God is revealed in the death of Christ. And this is what Paul's going to emphasize in verses 24 to 26. But the point is simply this. God's righteousness is demonstrated, it is shown to us, By God punishing our sin. Our salvation is not God overlooking our sin. He doesn't just give us a pass. He's not like a woke DA just saying, oh, don't worry about it. We'll let you go free. That's not what God does. He punishes our sin, but he has done it, of course, by punishing Christ instead of us. And so Christ here... is revealing God's righteousness by dying on the cross for our sins. And so, again, Paul's going to develop that point, especially uh, in verses 24 and following. But here, let's look at Hebrews chapter 9 and read a little bit from this passage. Hebrews 9, verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now Paul's going to emphasize what we call propitiation. This passage emphasizes what we call expiation. In other words, there has to be payment for sin. The term we use for that is atonement. And so the atoning work of the animals only did some external kind of cleansing. But the blood of Christ atones for our sins to cleanse our consciences. Through his atoning work, our sins are washed away. This is the term expiation. We are forgiven. They're done away with. In this sense, again, not just set aside and ignored, but actually paid for and then set aside. Again, Paul's going to emphasize then God's wrath is turned aside. That's not as much the emphasis here. 
So verse 15, and for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So notice Christ's work not only applies for us, but for the believers before Christ came, right? Under the first covenant, it says here. So the righteousness of God is revealed to us in the birth of Christ, his incarnation, through his perfect life, and now here through his atoning death. But we can keep going. The righteousness of God is demonstrated through the resurrection of Christ. How so? Well, Paul's going to say later in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. The reason why we die ultimately is because we are sinners. It's not because we have cancer or some other illness. It's not because we're in an accident or whatever. Those things are secondary reasons why we die. The primary reason why we die is because we're sinners. But Christ died. Does that mean he was a sinner? Well, the resurrection demonstrates that Christ was not a sinner. That he was sinless. That he was perfectly righteous. A righteous person cannot die. And so, since Jesus died, he had to come back to life. He died for our sin, taking God's righteous wrath, but he had to come back to life because he was innocent. And so, by the, uh, looking at the resurrection of Christ, this demonstrates the righteousness of God in this way. And that God's righteous judgment was against our sin, not Christ's sin. So let's look again here in Hebrews chapter 10. And let's pick up in verse 11. Hebrews 10 verse 11. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time waiting until his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now notice, this is not merely talking about the righteousness of God revealed (coughs) in the death of Christ. Do you see the allusion to the resurrection in these verses? How can Christ sit down at the right hand of God if he's dead? Right? Do you see the assumption here? He offered himself as a sacrifice for sins. He came to life, and then he sat down at the right hand of the Father. The assumption of the resurrection is inherent in these verses. And so the resurrection of Christ is demonstrating God's righteousness. Let's go another step. The, res, the, re, excuse me, the righteousness of God is demonstrated, is revealed through the ascension of Christ. We just read about it, right? He sat down at the right hand of God. Let's turn here a moment to Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians 2, let's begin our reading in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Let me pause there. He is equal with God, right? He is righteous like the Father. 
Okay. <clears throat> but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so here Paul is emphasizing the uh, righteousness of Christ's perfect life, even to the moment of death. Okay. And then, verse 9, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Do you see how he skipped over the resurrection? He doesn't say it specifically. But how is he going to uh, be highly exalted and be given this name if he's dead? Right? So the assumption of the resurrection is here as well. And so then verse 9 is emphasizing the exaltation, or excuse me, the ascension of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. Verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow <clears throat> of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, again, the righteousness of God is revealed in the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation of Christ. This is demonstrating his righteousness in all of these things. But we're not done yet. <clears throat> Let's turn to John chapter 6. The righteousness of God is also revealed through Christ in the sending of the Holy Spirit. So John 16, beginning in verse 5. But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Now, let me pause and just point this out. Jesus is not talking about his arrest. Remember, he said these words the night he was arrested, the upper room discourse. So he's not talking about going away to prison. He's not talking about going away to the cross either. He's talking about going away, the ascension, the return to heaven. And when he goes away, then he's going to send the Spirit. This is to our advantage because now we don't have to go wherever Jesus is on earth. We can go to Jesus at any time through the Spirit, even right here. There are other benefits, but that's one. So then he continues, verse 8. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So Jesus is teaching us here that the coming of the Spirit is going to help us to see the righteousness of God. All the things that we've talked about, plus the fact that now the Spirit leads us in righteousness. Right? We grow in grace. We become more and more righteous in our sanctification. Now, let me just briefly mention this, too. The righteousness of God will be demonstrated when Christ returns. <clears throat> Obviously, that's not Paul's emphasis here. But it's still going to be the case. When Jesus comes back, we will see the wrath of God against all 
wickedness, right? The dragon and the beasts and all sinners will be cast into the lake of fire. We will see judgment. The fire will devour everything. And then he will institute the new heavens and the new earth. The righteousness of God will be seen very clearly when Jesus comes back. And so we certainly can add that in our discussion here. But Paul, again, is not emphasizing that. Let's turn here a moment then to Isaiah 53 and look at this passage that we read earlier. All right, there's a lot here. Let me um, point out some of these things. You can possibly look at the first line in verse 2 as a, an allusion to his birth. Um, but certainly, let's pick up in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, Romans 1, 18 to 3.20. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The emphasis here is, of course, the righteousness of God is revealed through the death of Christ. That's the emphasis in those few verses. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Note the emphasis of the righteousness of Christ in his perfect obedience here. Even to the point of death, the death of the cross, right? Philippians 2 that we read. Verse 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made it... His grave with the wicked, with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So again, his perfect righteousness, his atoning death are emphasized there. Verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now that's the word that takes us back to Genesis 3.15. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You see the assumption of the resurrection there. How can he see his seed? How can he prolong his days if he's dead? If he's in the tomb here, right? Back to verse 9. The assumption here is the resurrection for this to be fulfilled. Verse 11. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. We will see that especially developed in Romans 3, 24 to 26. Verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. You see the first part of that uh, verse there. These benefits, this portion, this is something that Christ already has. We are that portion. We are that benefit, his people. But there is an anticipation of heaven and the fullness of this. So note, my righteous servant 
shall justify. All these righteous words. So in all of these ways, God's righteousness is revealed. Now, other aspects of God's character are revealed in every one of these things that we've talked about. But for Paul, the primary thing that we see is the righteousness of God. And so in the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, the giving of the Spirit, even his return, all these things are demonstrating God's righteousness, even as he works in us now by his Spirit to grow us in grace. So this, back to chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, this is what we are to proclaim when we are telling people about Christ. Not just this warm, fuzzy, oh, God loves everybody. He does love us, and this is how he shows it. This is how it's accomplished. So when you're witnessing to someone, you have to mention about the righteousness of God. It's the central aspect of it. So, let's come back to Romans 3. And let me bring in one more point here then. And that is what we see in the middle of this in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. So let me talk about this here just briefly. First of all, notice that he is using, Paul is using the word law in two ways in this verse. At the end of the verse, he is clearly talking about the Old Testament, the the works of Moses. But in this one, he uses it differently. And he is talking about merit. He is talking about our law keeping. The righteousness of God is revealed, but not by anything that we do. Our law keeping demonstrates God's unrighteousness, if you will. Um, It demonstrates how we have broken it. We have broken his law. And so there is no righteousness of God revealed through us other than we can only say the judgment we deserve our law keeping produces no righteousness no one is righteous our best efforts are mixed with sin but the righteousness that belongs to God is going to be given to us as a gift it's not according to anything we do God is the source of the righteousness He is the one who gives this gift to those who trust in Christ. And so we have no righteousness. Christ has perfect righteousness. And we don't add a thing to it. And so this is a sign of God's love. But it is an act of justice to punish sin and to reward with righteousness. Now... Um, the historical actions that we have talked about here uh, in this way last week and here this week this is how God's righteousness is shown and how it is shown apart from anything that we do we have nothing to contribute except our own disobedience and frankly we can't do it as we've talked about in chapters 1 to 3 Let's turn a moment just to uh, John chapter 1. Again, we could look at many other passages here in this way. But in John 1, 
John says it like this, verse 12 of John 1. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood. So it doesn't matter what our parents have done. It doesn't matter if we're a descendant of Abraham physically, nor the will of the flesh. In other words, there's nothing that I do in my flesh, my actions, my godliness, that, that does not contribute to my birth, my spiritual new birth, nor the will of man. My choice has no say, because as Paul has told us in Romans 3, no one seeks God. In Ephesians 2, we're dead in our sins. And so none of our actions... None of our choices, none of our heritage contributes to our new birth. But he ends, but of God. And as Paul says here in Romans 3, verse 21, it is apart from law. Okay. God does this not by ignoring our sin, but by maintaining his righteousness, being true to himself, and doing it himself. For us, because we can't, and we wouldn't either. But you know, this has always been true. If I can bring back in some of what I said last week, the Law and the Prophets have been talking about this all along, even all the way back to the Garden. We see these ideas demonstrated in the sacrificial system. We've seen that righteousness through the substitute has been given to the sinner by imputation, our, son, our sins are then imputed to the substitute, and that substitute receives wrath instead of the sinner. This goes all the way back to Genesis 3, verse 21. It's always been this way. It's always been that someone else, apart from what we do, it's always been somebody else's work in our place. But of course, as we see in Hebrews, the death of those animals didn't actually accomplish it, but it pointed to what Christ would do. There are no exceptions to this. None at all. It has always been this way. And so as I began here this morning, and we look at the handiwork of God in our salvation through Christ, don't we see demonstrated for us God's righteousness? Again, among other attributes, but this is the one that is emphasized. And so these events of history have accomplished these things for us. Christ's work means that we're no longer in bondage to sin, but we are now free. We are no longer condemned for our sin. We are justified. We are no longer excluded from God's blessings, but we participate. And this is true for Jew and for Gentile. So a few thoughts here this morning, and certainly we will um, say much more as we go along. So we'll turn to verse 22 here, Lord willing, next time. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father and God, we are thankful and praise you that you are righteous in every way. We thank you, Lord, that we see this in what you have made and, and in history, and especially here in your word, and in particular through the finished work of Christ. We praise you, Lord, that... You do love us, 
and that your love is demonstrated through the upholding of your law, through the coming of Christ, his birth and life, his death and resurrection, his ascension and glorification, through the giving of your spirit, and even at his return, we see who you are in this way. We praise you, Lord, for it. And so, Lord, may we then understand and see this demonstration, this revelation, that we might know the logical points that Paul is making and how it fits then with the chronology of the coming of Christ. Lord, we are just uh, amazed at your love for us and your goodness to us and that you can accomplish this without violating who you are. And so like with Paul at the end of Romans 11, we just marvel at your amazing wisdom that you um, have done these things. And so, Lord, we, um, uh, we give you glory and we give you thanks. And we pray all of this then in Jesus' name. Amen.